turn to the book of Luke and chapter 23. And in a few minutes we'll start reading from verse 26. Luke's, Luke chapter 23, verse 26. Um, if you don't have a copy of the Bible with you but you'd like to follow in one, then do raise a hand and one of the girls will bring one to you. Just keep your hand up. It will be, it will be seen and a Bible will come to you. Okay, let's read together from verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women, who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that have never borne, the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Excuse me. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, if he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine with vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me. In paradise. Over the, uh, the weeks and, and months, we've been looking at the, the events of the Easter weekend. And today we have arrived at Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, and in that sense, we are we're treading carefully on holy ground this morning um, at events that are absolutely central to our faith. We've been considering the question as we've been looking. Um, at the build-up to Jesus' crucifixion, I've been considering the question, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? What purpose did it serve? Why did God ordain that this should happen? Why did Jesus die on the cross? And we've looked at a number of reasons that he became 
um, our Passover lamb. He became our example. He became our substitute, taking on himself the wrath of God. And today we're going to consider another facet, another answer to that question, another facet to this amazing gem, which is this. Jesus willingly went to the cross to become our compassionate saver, saviour. He, he went to the cross to demonstrate the Father's compassion, to demonstrate kindness. It's also how he went. As he went, he did so showing incredible compassion and kindness and care. Someone has written this, the most ex- outstanding feature of Luke's portrait of the death of Jesus is the care and compassion he showed people as he wended his way to the cross at a time when surely he had every right to be preoccupied with his own suffering. It's amazing to consider, you know, what comes out of us when we are under pressure? What comes out of you when things aren't going perfectly? Jesus at this point is tired, he's been up all night, he's been betrayed by a friend, he's been abandoned by the rest, he's been misunderstood, falsely accused in a mock trial that's been rushed through, he's been threatened, he's experienced excruciating violence already, mockery, ridicule, and now as we read he's experiencing the process of execution. What is coming out of Jesus when he's under that amount of pressure is compassion, Our God is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, as the Father of compassion. And our Lord Jesus here, the Son of God, is coming to demonstrate what the Father is like. And that is therefore showing compassion. He said himself um, in Luke 19, verse 10, that the Son of Man has uh, has come to seek and to save what what was lost. That's his mission And in love, he is even carrying out that mission of seeking and saving the lost during the process of his crucifixion. So how persuaded are you? How persuaded are we of God's compassion? How persuaded are we of the kindness of God that we see here in Jesus? When we we pray for people who are in desperate situations, perhaps when we pray for people uh, to be healed, or when we pray for family members or friends or neighbors or colleagues because we want to see them saved, we want to see them come to know Jesus, do we pray knowing that God cares more about them than we can ever imagine? Or do we see ourselves as trying to petition a holy God who's kind of far removed and maybe doesn't really care? See, our view of authority might mean that in a business or in an organization, the guy at the top is basically out of touch. He's, he's got a lot of responsibilities. He might be very impressive. He's got a lot of plates to spin. He's very responsible, perhaps. But does he really care? The guy at the top, now he's, he's probably out of touch. He's not come down, as it were, to the shop floor to find out what it's really like. Well, here we have a God who is called the Father of Compassion, who stepped down on the earth to demonstrate that compassion. So when you pray, are you, are you approaching a holy God, a God immortal, invisible, only wise, truly glorious? Do you have a concept of approaching a father of compassion? 
that as we pray, as we seek him, he cares more than we ever will. He cares more about me. He cares more about us. He cares more about the lost. He cares about those who are far away. He cares about those who are near. He cares about the religious hypocrites. He cares about likes of uh, tax collectors and sinners like Zacchaeus who uh, really just gained the whole load of derision for themselves because they were so unlikable. Well, God came to seek and save the lost in his son. Jesus' compassion here um, in Luke is, is brought out by three events or three interactions um, that actually we don't see anywhere else uh, in the Gospels. Luke particularly wants to bring out that Jesus is compassionate, that our, our God in the flesh is a God of compassion. He particularly wants to emphasize that, and therefore he highlights key events um, that actually other Gospel writers uh, didn't draw attention to. Uh, Luke sees fit to bring our attention to it for this reason. We're going to look at the three of them, look at who did Jesus show compassion to, how did he show compassion to them, and what does that mean for us? What does that mean today? And First of all, he showed compassion to the daughters of Jerusalem uh, in verse 28. Now obviously, uh, in Jerusalem, there are some people who want Jesus killed. Uh, there are some others who are mourning for him. This was the customary thing to do for someone who was condemned to die. Before they died, the, the mourning and the wailing would already begin. It was, it was mourning, it was grieving ahead of time because Jesus hadn't yet died. But perhaps to show comfort, to perhaps show their solidarity, um, they are, uh, they're mourning, they're, they're wailing um, for him. And it seems that that is treated as a, as a genuine uh, sign of grief. So how, how did Jesus show his compassion, his concern for them? He said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. Right at the point of going to Calvary, going to the place called the skull, Jesus is more concerned about, the, about other people's future than by his own imminent execution. He knows that in a sense, something worse awaits people in Jerusalem than awaits him. Because he knows that whilst he's going to die on the cross and suffer horrendously there, he knows that three days later he's going to, to rise to a new life. He knows that he's going to be completely vindicated he knows that. But he's aware of something that's happening, that's about to happen that is truly dreadful. And this brings out in a number of verses. Verse 29. It would seem that there's a time coming when it will be better to have not had children because of what is so, the suffering that's about to happen in Jerusalem that will be so horrific. Uh, normally a sign of great blessing, obviously, to have children, but to come a time when it will be better not to have had children, because otherwise you're just going to have to see your own children suffer horrendously. Verse 30, there's coming a time when people would rather be buried alive than face the suffering that's to come. And verse 31, uh, there's another saying there, for if men do these things when a tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? The, the sense of that is, if this kind of fate befalls someone like Jesus, who's completely innocent, 
Just imagine what kind of fate is ahead for the dry wood responsible for his death. So again, Jesus is more concerned about what his death means for those who will reject him than he is about his own situation. In fact, like these daughters of Jerusalem, Jesus has been mourning ahead of time. So in Luke chapter 13 and verse 34, we read there, um, Jesus saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then again, as he's approaching Jerusalem, as he's in Jerusalem in, in chapter 19 and verse 41, it says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Or actually, the word wept could be rendered wailed. He is grieving over this city. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Words that are, uh, were fulfilled later in AD 70, um, when the Romans by then had had enough of this rebellious and difficult nation. Um, They decided they'd have enough, and Jerusalem and the temple completely, completely ransacked. Jesus is then grieving ahead of time, concerned, mourning and wailing the, the future for people who have rejected him. Just imagine if, for example, you were invited to a party with some friends, some good friends, some good family. You arrive at the party. The party is in, is in full swing. You think, this, this looks like a, a, good, a good party. I'm, I'm going to look forward to this. You, you go into the door. You're kind of welcomed. But at that point, as you wander around the house, you realize unmistakably there is the horrific stench of gas and, uh, and you know such is the, the powerful smell of this gas. You know, this is not just some minor, minor leak. You know, this is really, really serious. Someone flicks a light, someone lights a cigarette, this place is just going to blow. And so because you are concerned for your friends and for your family, you very quickly and very wisely say, we've got to get out of here right now. There is no hanging about. We've got to go. And some people listen to you, and some of your friends, they, they come with you straight away. But imagine, imagine your grief, imagine your concern, if maybe already having had a little bit too much to drink, some of your friends just ignore you. Some of your friends seem completely unaware, unconcerned about this problem, and so the party goes on. You know that the risks are there, you know the dangers are there, and so it's time to go. A time has come, we're going to leave. Some people come. Some people are left there. You're then outside. You're ringing for help. But you know there's some people in there and they're just refusing. Maybe even violently refusing to come out. You think, what, what is going on? 
That times a thousand million is the kind of grief that's involved here for Jesus. He's gone. He's, he's come. He's shared the message. He's wanted people to respond to truth. They've made their decision. Time after time, he's been rejected. And now a time is coming when the disaster will befall. So what does that mean for us? God cares more about our eternal destiny, all of our eternal destinies, than we can ever possibly imagine. So when, two, when Peter writes in, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3 uh, and verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is God's desire for all people. But there is a time coming. There's a, there's a patience in God that is wanting and is willing people to come to him and receive a message of salvation that only comes through Jesus. Therefore, there's tremendous grief about people who refuse to come, about people who've perhaps heard the message of salvation, heard the gospel, but then have made a decision, this is not for me. Can I lovingly say the implications of ignoring God are absolutely horrendous. Be a reason for God to rejoice and for you to rejoice rather than for God to grieve. So Jesus here demonstrating compassion that flows out actually in grief towards, towards Jerusalem, towards the daughters of Jerusalem. He goes on, he also shows incredible compassion a little later on. We read that he's crucified between, between two criminals. He's become considered, he's, he dies among criminals as one of them. Um, the gospel writers, they don't bring a great deal of attention to the, the physical horrors of what crucifixion involved. We, we just find out that um, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Luke is not especially saying, come, come, consider just how horrific physical crucifixion is, which undoubtedly it is. What he's wanting to bring attention to is something else that, again, only Luke uh, mentions as a detail that he wants to bring out in particular. Jesus said, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus, praying then for those who are responsible for his execution. He has just experienced all that we mentioned earlier on. Now he's had nails driven through his wrists and his feet onto a cross, holding him up, waiting for him to asphyxiate and die. And using what little breath he has, he prays, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive those who are responsible for my execution. Directed then, undoubtedly, to the Roman soldiers who had the gruesome task of crucifying him. They were following orders. They themselves, not necessarily responsible for the decision to execute, it comes to them to perform a task to carry it out. We might say that largely they were ignorant of what was, was going on. They wouldn't necessarily have understood all the finer points of the trial that's, that's taken place. They would not necessarily have heard Jesus and his teaching on previous occasions. Who knows? 
Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. But are they entirely innocent? Would Jesus ask for them to be forgiven if they had done no wrong? They might be unaware of what's going on, but surely they might be aware of of the huge overarching picture, but surely they're aware that, that Jesus is innocent. Surely the message is filtered through that actually Pilate declared Jesus to be innocent three times before then succumbing to the pressure to have him executed. Surely they're aware of the placard that's on the cross above his head saying, this is the king of the Jews. Well, on that placard always went the crime that someone had committed in order to warrant being crucified. What crime had Jesus committed? Oh, he's the king of the Jews. It doesn't sound like a crime. So surely they know in some measure that he was innocent. So how, how does Jesus show that compassion? Well, he prays a prayer. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus is actually doing what he himself had told others to do. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you on the cross. Compassion flows out in Jesus praying that very prayer. And these soldiers are forgiven in the context of showing absolutely callous disregard for him, waiting for him to die whilst they divide up his clothes by casting lots. Jesus shows compassion and his prayer is effective. His prayer is effective. There's hints of it later on. A a verse a little later on that we haven't read out, but verse 47. The centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. And it goes on. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they they beat their breasts and went away. There's, There's indication Actually, God's, the Lord Jesus' prayer on the cross was answered as these people began to see what had truly taken place. It was answered later on as well. Again, Luke records uh, in Acts chapter 2. As Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. In verse 36. It says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God had made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And he goes on. As it, it's interesting there, Peter's not just saying, Oh, it was, the, it was the soldiers, they were responsible. No, he's addressing this huge crowd in Jerusalem and saying, You crucified the Lord and Savior. You're responsible. You were there. You were responsible for it. Again, as evidence of God's wonderful grace and this prayer being answered later on in Acts 6 and verse 7, it says, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Again, who was responsible for Jesus' death? Well, the Roman soldiers. Many in Jerusalem, in particular priests, they were coming into faith. They were coming and receiving the gospel. And again, we read um, of, the, of the conversion of, of Paul. don't know exactly what Paul was doing when Jesus was crucified. Had he been there, I think he would have been agreeing with it, would be my hunch. And I think that he knows that himself. And so in later years, when he writes to uh, Timothy... He writes in 1 Timothy, 
chapter 1. And he says this in verse 15. He says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience and as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul, maybe there in the flesh, maybe not. If he wasn't there, still he's responsible. Still he, he knows it was for his sin that Jesus went, for, went to the cross. And now he's received wonderful salvation. I wasn't there, but I know it was for my sin. I know that whilst I wasn't there in the flesh, actually, had I been, I probably would have joined in. Because like Pilate, I'm, I could be prone to compromise on my convictions. Like Herod, I could be prone to, to ridicule that which I find threatening. Like the disciples, I can abandon someone uh, when the going gets tough. I think I would have been there responsible for it too. And yet we, and I myself, have received the benefit of Jesus' prayer from the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So again, what does this mean for us? Jesus has demonstrated tremendous compassion. What does this mean for us? There's an element in what we've just looked at there. I say an element, a small element, but it is there, of bad news. And the bad news is this, that we can be guilty for being ignorant. We can be guilty of something and need forgiving when we don't know what we're doing. Sometimes we see that in the Old Testament, a whole number of Offerings and sacrifices that had to be made for unintentional sins. Things that at some stage came to light. I didn't realize I'd done that, but actually I am guilty of it. It'd be like um, running across the grass at some, I don't know, some museum or public park or whatever, without seeing there's a sign, don't walk on the grass. Actually, I've done it. I was ignorant of the fact that the sign was there, but actually I've still done something wrong. Or in fact, um, a shame to admit, I was once catching a train. You know when, when trains all had slammed doors? They didn't kind of have doors you pressed a button and they opened. You just turned the handle, you jumped in, and then you sat next to some complete strangers who were sat by the door. I was, um, I was running for the train. And um, I, I got on the train, one of those slammed doors, after it had already begun to move. And I had an inkling at the time, whilst I didn't see a sign, I had an inkling that perhaps that wasn't the best thing to do, but I thought I'd probably get away with it anyway. Lo and behold, the train ground to a halt before leaving the platform. Someone scarpered down, opened the door that I just came through and said, off you get. Um, So if about eight years ago, any of you were Portsmouth Harbour on the 1535, and thinking, why has the train just stopped? It just pulled away. That was to let me off. Um, because in my ignorance, I had done something uh, which I, I am uh, remorseful for, shouldn't have done, but I did do. So ignorant, but still guilty. And sometimes we can come across, we come across people, or in ourselves we can notice a tendency that whatever's happened, whatever's taken place, it's not really my fault. In fact, I, I didn't know, or I was just doing what I was told, or he made me do it. I didn't understand what I was doing. I wasn't thinking. Silly me. 
That's still sin of which we are responsible and need forgiveness for. So again, Peter preaching um, a little bit after the day of Pentecost in Acts 3. Just healed uh, a lame man. An opportunity to speak then takes, uh, takes place. We see in Acts 3, a reading from verse 17, he says this to the crowd. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He says that. I know that you acted in ignorance. You didn't necessarily have the full picture of things. You might have had a few pieces of the puzzle. You connected them together in the wrong order, and therefore you didn't really have a proper understanding of what was happening when Jesus died and went to the cross. You were ignorant of it. Your leaders were too. Again, if the question comes, well, what should we do then? Verse 19 answers the question. Repent then and turn to God so that his sins may be wiped out. And that, again, is the good news that God's compassion means forgiveness is freely available to all of us when we turn to him. Jesus prays it from the cross. Jesus um, had no sin of his own. And again, Luke wants to bring that to attention. He says time and time again, whether it's from uh, Pilate's mouth or whether it's from a criminal's mouth or whether it's from the centurion's mouth, Jesus is innocent. He wasn't dying because of his own sin. Because of something he had done wrong. Therefore, he's uniquely able to take upon himself our sin that enables him to die in our place. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And his blood still speaks the same word. It still says forgiveness is available. Mercy is abundantly available for anyone, for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. What tremendous compassion that at the very point, at the very point of being executed, at the very point of being hung on the cross, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Again, what comes out of me? What comes out of you when the pressure's on, when the heat's on? I don't think it's necessarily going to be that. I've got, I've got a measure of compassion for some people that I know and some people that I don't know. Jesus has an awesome measure of compassion for people who are responsible for his execution. Absolutely awesome. Thirdly, he demonstrates his compassion in another way uh, that, again, Luke particularly wants to draw our attention to, and that is with his interaction with the the contrite criminal, the criminal who, um, as it were, had a change of heart. The word criminal means one who commits gross misdeeds and serious crimes. One, one translation puts it that they were, um, they were evildoers, were also led out to him to be executed with him. And this criminal himself Whatever we might think of capital punishment, this criminal himself sees his own fitting, his own crime as fitting the punishment, or his own punishment as fitting the crime. When he says in verse 41, We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. 
But this man has done nothing wrong. A criminal who even understands himself that his own crime was so bad as to warrant this. It's also possible that we see from uh, Matthew and Mark's account that, that both criminals on the cross, either side of Jesus, both took part in taunting him and reviling him and mocking him, which then leaves the possibility that actually this guy had a change of heart. But he could have been doing that from the cross earlier on. Either Matthew and Mark are providing a summary, uh, this, is what the criminal, this is how the criminals reacted, um, or uh, they're saying that's how they both reacted, but one had a change of heart. This, is, this guy, he is a thoroughly bad egg. He is totally reprehensible. He is therefore seemingly a very unlikely candidate to receive compassion. He doesn't deserve it. He's getting what his acts deserve. He's being crucified. And yet he becomes the recipient of something quite amazing. He has a change of heart. How did that happen? Maybe it was hearing Jesus pray. Maybe it was seeing the placard above his head. Maybe it was seeing how Jesus doesn't react to all the taunts and the insults that were heaped upon him. Whatever happens, he recognizes Jesus' complete innocence. And he recognizes that whilst pitifully dying on the cross, this man is about to enter into a kingdom. And so he makes a simple request. When he says, remember me. Remember me. It's almost like, imagine when someone goes on holiday, you know that you're going to work. This person's going on holiday and they're going to be sunning themselves on the beach for a week. And you might say, remember me, think of me when you're there. This guy makes that kind of simple request, remember me, which then gets met with an amazing promise. He gets more than he counted on. And the promise is this. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Not just I'm going to remember you, but you're going to be with me, not just at some dim and distant point in the future, but today, once this is over, you're going to be with me. Where? In paradise, or in the garden. That garden that was lost when Adam sinned, now Jesus is bringing people into. Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit that they shouldn't have done. This guy, we don't know what he's done. But it's horrendous. Now, hanging on the cross, he's given this simply amazing promise that now and forever he's going to be with Jesus in paradise. So what does this mean for us? It means this. No one at all is beyond God's forgiveness. No one is beyond God's compassion. We might think of that as from our, from our own point of view. And we might say, I'm not good enough for God. And sometimes that thought is what can hold people back from wanting to receive God's uh, forgiveness and salvation in the first place. They'll kind of look around, look around the kind of the sea of respectability. I think, I, I'm not really sure I fit in here. Um, I'm sure everyone here generally has life sorted. I don't. I'm, I'm not good enough really for this. I'm not really good enough for this gift. Some people might think that, or we might... We might think that of ourselves. 
Or people might say, well, I, I would follow God, but I've got nothing to offer him. And surely, therefore, he won't accept me, he won't receive me. I need to be able to give him back something. If he's giving me something so amazing, surely I need to pay him back. I, I haven't got anything to give him. And again, that can be a thought that um, crosses people's minds and hinders them from coming into God's kingdom or just keeps us who do know Jesus in a kind of a low-key state. We are Christians, but we feel low-key about it. I'm not good enough. I've got nothing to offer God. This man's experience blows both of those things completely out of the water. He was not good enough for God. He had nothing to offer God because he was about to die as well. Jesus shows him tremendous, tremendous compassion, a compassion that is still available for all today. So why did Jesus go to the cross? He went to the cross to become our compassionate saviour. Do you know this compassion for yourself? Are you fully, fully persuaded of God's kindness in Christ? Are you fully persuaded of God's compassion for you? More than fuzzy feelings that we might have towards a friend. He's not the kind of man at the top who's somehow out of touch and unaware of what's going on. No, God stepped down to walk on the earth and then suffer and die in our place. To give us and to make possible total forgiveness and eternal life with him. Do you know this compassion for yourself? Do you know this compassion for other people? That none of us cares more about the people that we might pray for than God does. No no one cares more about the lost than God does. Jesus cares more about every situation and difficulty that we might present to him than we do. He cares about our family, about our friends, about our neighbors, about our colleagues, about situations of intense suffering. He cares more about than we do. He cares about the most unlovely people more than we ever will. He cares about the lost and those who have never heard the gospel before more than we ever will. It means that his heart grieves over those who've not yet received him as saviour, more than we ever will. We will never outdo God's compassion, but we are called increasingly to be like him, so that what breaks his heart is also what breaks our heart. But also we are a people who are able to rejoice in God's tremendous compassion. How do you see God? How do you view God? How do you view Jesus? How do you view the cross? Jesus died on the cross to demonstrate compassion, to become our compassionate saviour. Let's pray.